What did, what did y'all think about the, uh, the white chart stuff? Did you see my text? I said, I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to see this because it's a question that's constantly on my mind. <laughs> Jimmy, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have, I have too many thoughts on this, but like, I mean, I, I, I zoomed in on like, I don't know, it was like the fifth page or something like that. And it was basically the summary and it was just talking about, okay, let's look at all these, um, smart people indicators like the, you know, um, what was it? S and P 500 to Cape ratio, um, the yield spreads on the two and the 10 and the two and the three and the Buffett indicator in Tobin's Q, which I had never even heard of before. And, all of them had sub 60% accuracy in terms of uh, forecasting, accurately forecasting recessions. So I'm like, okay, there's, there's your answer. I can look into why these haven't been accurate, but it, I mean, the bottom line for me is no, these, these, these things can't accurately predict recessions, you know, every single time. Um, it's, you know, which I mean, it confirmed what I had previously thought, but you know, did, did you guys have any, any more insight other than, yeah, uh, can't really predict, uh, you know, recessions are, are down. Yeah, well, we, we should, we should, let's, I was let's take some time to explain. Yeah. Yeah. Explain I what it is to to, before we get yeah. way too into this. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but, but why charts came out with this like giant slide deck of, I guess it was more like a, I guess, it, yeah, a slide deck, um, talking about all of the different indicators for overvaluation in the market or, indicators for when a bear market's going to happen. And so they look at all these popular indicators like the Buffett indicator, which measures um, the total U.S. stock market value to U.S. GDP. They look at Tobin's Q, which I still don't know what that is. Um, they just look at the S&P 500 PE ratio. When that gets over 120%, it's mean, it's average um, for lifetime average. Then they look at their, their CAPE ratio, the 10 to two yield spread, whenever that inverts, the 10 to three month yield spread, whenever that inverts, and then the S&P 500 year over year earnings growth, whenever that falls, that's an indicator that we're going into a bear market soon. And so they look at all of these from 1971 to date and from 2000 to date as today. Uh, and they decide, or they, they figure out what is the accuracy of all of these different indicators. So, you know, like my thoughts was, wow, these things are not nearly as accurate as I would have thought they would have been. Now, did I think these things were perfect? No, but did I think some of these would have a 30% success rate in predicting a bear market? No, I, I mean, I thought most of them would be at least 50%, but that's just not the case. And so I think there's a lot of takeaways that we can have from this, but Zane, I think, I think you have a few. Yeah. My big one is, and I kind of want to ask this question to you guys, like which indicator do you think before you knew this data, would you have thought um, actually correlates the most and has the most to tell investors? For me, I kind of thought it would have been the PE ratio just given that, you know, it's kind of been something that you can count on, like, you know, stocks are going to fall back to their PE valuation. Um, S&P trades at like, what, 20 roughly on average. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Uh, but the fact that that is not uh, the case, only 40% of the time since 1989 has that um, been an accurate indicator. And from 2000, it's only been an accurate indicator 29% of the time. And it takes 36 months to kick in. Like at that point, 
you know, if you're giving it 36 months to, to kick in, it's kind of useless in my opinion, because so much is going to happen in those 36 months. Uh, but I thought PE ratio would have been more useful, um, but you know, it's kind of just lumped in the pack. It's honestly one of the worst. Yeah, I I was surprised about I I was fully expecting um, S and P five hundred year over year earnings growth to be um, way more accurate than than it was. Um, but you know, uh, nineteen what was it nineteen fifty. Yeah, 1950 year to date, uh, to date uh, for the S&P 500 was only correct 43% of the time. And then the average time it took, um, it, it, it took to kick in was over 17 months on average. I mean, I would have thought that would have been a pretty good indicator. I mean, if earnings growth, uh, you know, for the S&P 500 is declining, um, that's got to mean that there's some weakness broadly. I mean... One industry can't pull down the S&P 500 earnings growth single-handedly. So there has to be some sort of macro event that's pulling down, um, you know, earnings growth for the entire S&P 500. And so I would have thought that, yeah, if that's declining, there's there has to be some sort of macro factor going on. Um, but the fact that that was right, I mean, only 43% of the time out of the indicators that uh, y chart studied, uh, you know, 43% was actually pretty high. There were only a couple that were over 50% correct um, uh, from, you know, since inception to date. So, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, 43% is decent compared to the other indicators. But I was just surprised that it was that low. I would have thought it would have been um, much, much higher. I wonder when when's the cutoff? Because if the average um, time from when the signal sets off. So when the Buffett indicator goes over 120%, you know, the stock market value goes over 120% US GDP, that's when the indicator sets off. And it's saying that 24 months from then, since from 1971 to today, there have been 14 times. And on average, when the Buffett indicator sets, it takes 24 months for it to reach the S&P peak. So I'm wondering when's the cutoff? Because if you're looking at these indicators, when they, it's saying 50% accuracy, but it's average is 24 months away. And I would argue that 24 months- That's not accurate at all. Yeah, it's not That's <laughs> not very accurate. So- It should all be 100% accurate. If something happens 64, yeah, exactly. If something <laughs> happens 64 months out in the future, does that, does that count? Because like we're looking at an average of 36 months uh, for the S&P uh, 500 PE ratio indicator. When that, when that becomes overvalued compared to its mean, it takes on average 36 months for that to set in. And I Imagine, think the main think lesson of everything here, that's sure somewhere in the, in the fine print years. that we didn't read. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, think about that. We've been <laughs> through every possible cycle in the last three years, it feels like. Um, but I, I definitely think the takeaway here, like especially when you look at the PE ratio, um, you know, when you look at earnings growth, things you, that you start to think about is the market can stay irrational a whole lot longer than you can stay rational. And this is That's this point is emphasized. For. At yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure most people have heard this quote. You know, it's it's really popular and it's so true. It's it's a uh, I mean. This is all pure evidence for that quote being true. Can we 
shift gears a little bit. I was uh, having a two and a half um, hour drive home uh, or back to college. And when I do that, I listen to podcasts and my mind ad just goes absolutely nuts. And so I'm going to skip down a little bit because always um, to, finance, to the fourth it? topic. It's not always investing. Uh, no, it, it usually is. Sometimes it's sometimes it's more philosophical. Uh, sometimes it's more econ. But you know, it it always revolves around the business world. But um, this this idea did come in, and it is uh, about a specific stock, Taiwan Semi. So I heard John Rotanti talking about this, um, and on on a Motley Fool podcast, and I just got thinking. And so when I got back, I did some research. Taiwan Semi trades at 10 times forward sales. That is the cheapest over the past year and, you know, extremely cheap, cheaper than the S&P 500 by a wide margin. They're trade, uh, the S&P 500 is trading at something like earnings. Er, earnings. Did I say sales? Yeah, you said so. Okay. Yeah. You've been looking times... at too many unprofitable tech stocks. <laughs> <laughs> no, 10 times earnings. The, the um, S&P trades at like something around 16 times forward earnings. And then if you look at um, some of their those their profitability metrics, revenue growing, uh, you know, pretty steadily 36%, that's been increasing operating margin above 44%. That's been slowly increasing profit margin above 40%. That's been steadily increasing free cash flow over the trailing 12 months, $17 billion. That's been increasing over the past five years. And so I'm, I'm thinking, Taiwan let me, let, hold on, Jamie. Let me add yeah, to your no. numbers real quick, just because I, I pulled do. up a few. Um, free cash flow is up 111% in the last five years. Um, EBITDA is up 110% in the last five years, and free cash flow is up nearly 77% in the last five years. So Rates are 7%. You got to do better okay. than that. You got to do better than that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but those, those are insane profitability numbers. Those are insane growth numbers, and they're trading it. 10 times earnings. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of like investing in, um, in investing in semiconductor stocks, but NVIDIA is far and away in the segment that it operates in, in the semi space. They are the leader. I don't see how that could get disrupted because they have, uh, yes, TSM. Jeez. I really can't, uh, think straight. <laughs> My God. But yeah, so they're the dominant leader, and it's a capital-intense industry. So I don't know how a competitor would be able to invest uh, into gaining the same capital and, and equipment that they have. What am I missing here? This seems like a, a, a screaming opportunity right now for people that have just been looking to invest in a safe part of the semiconductor industry. TSM seems like that pick that could be it. Am I, am I getting something wrong here? I can go out on all right. I don't know this industry really at all. But is the investment in the U.S. in the chip space a threat to them? Like I'm seeing, you know, a lot of talk about about uh, funds being poured into manufacturing in the U.S. and how much is just talk versus actually doing it. I don't know. And then there's the whole, you know, geopolitical risk of Taiwan. I'm just throwing out ideas. TSM is actually investing a lot of money in the U.S. to do manufacturing here. Um, and so I think that's helpful. Also, I think artificial intelligence is going to really help this business in the U.S. specifically because labor is a, is a, is, is a high cost um, for a business like this. So if you can cut down on those labor costs in the semiconductor manufacturing space, I think that could really be beneficial here in the U.S. In Taiwan, that's not as big of a problem as labor is a little bit cheaper over there. Um, but 
the reason that I think it's trading at a cheap valuation right now is because of China and China only. I think that's their one risk, not their one risk, but their primary risk. And I think that's what's weighing down on this price to earnings ratio. And the risk is that China will invade Taiwan, take it over, you know, and, and, and my thinking is if China invades Taiwan, they take over Taiwan Semi, they only distribute to China. There are so many other problems that are going to happen to every single company in your portfolio that, I mean, the whole, everything's messed up. Like literally the entire market is going to have major, major problems if that happens. And so it won't just be Taiwan Semi. So I don't think people really understand how important this company is. Over 90% of the world's advanced chips, that's Apple, that's everything that you're watching this on, um, those graphic processors, those are um, you know complex CPUs, everything technologically advanced in society, those chips are, 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 are made in uh in taiwan semi in taiwan and so connor, if something happens to that we've got we've got worse problems yeah, connor you brought up my favorite uh twitter meme in finance from for the last week or two and that is <clears throat> oh um nuclear war is breaking out that means the fed is going to have to lower interest rates this is bullish Let's <laughs> yeah. <go>. it's that <laughs> kind of sentiment it's like wait hang on you're worried about your stock portfolio <laughs> yeah that that's what i'm thinking like they're like if a powerhouse like China just went rogue and tried to invade invade Taiwan, there's going to be so many larger ramifications on your portfolio. And, you know, a company like Starbucks, um, it, what happens to their what, – what operations are they going to be doing in China if China just decides to take over um, Taiwan? I – as, as a shareholder, I would probably be pretty upset if they just, you know, kept operating there and continued operating there. They'd probably be at least some sort of pressure to pull out. So why isn't Starbucks seeing that same exact pressure uh, or, you know, risk of, of you know, that, that Chinese risk? I, I I think you're totally on the ball, Connor. Like, if China does something crazy to put Taiwan Semi at risk, so many other companies are going to be involved. And the last thing you're going to be worrying about, um, you know, for the majority of people is your portfolio. There's going to be other bigger, more important things in your portfolio. And um, so I don't know, like, if that's the only reason Taiwan Semi is trading um, at 10 times earnings, which I think is an absolute steal for a company, like with this quality, this profitability and this dominance in such an important space. God, I... I'm I'm fine I'm 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 struggling to figure out why I don't own this company right now. It's one of, it's one of my largest holdings and it has been since early in 2020 when I first bought a call option on TSM. Uh that was my first option that I ever bought and it worked out extremely extremely well. I really didn't know what I was doing at that point in Internet's time. Luck. Um, now he works but, at an options trading okay. firm. So yeah exactly. <laughs> that, then I just got lucky. Yep. Let that be a lesson to everyone. So, Make but, but sure anyways, you gamble on your first options bet, and then it'll go right. <laughs> you'll land the job you want. Yeah, so I got I got the call option. Sure enough, uh, I bought it a little bit out of the money. The shares rose in price. I it went in the money, and then I ended up just collect. Or I ended up um, it, getting the shares from that call option. So that worked out really well. I still hold a lot of those shares um, today, which is which is awesome. But my thing, when I look at TSM, I look at the risk reward scenario here where the risk is China, but the risk to everything in my portfolio is China, 
pretty much because I'm pretty heavy tech. So the risk is relatively similar between Taiwan Semi and NVIDIA because NVIDIA manufactures all of their chips at TSM. I'm looking at a company that's growing free cash flow 75% in the last uh, last five years. You know, it's grown top line revenue into the triple digits over the last five years and is trading at 10 times forward earnings. I mean, I think the risk reward scenario here looks pretty good. And even though it's fallen pretty heavily, it's still still one of my top top 10 positions in my portfolio. All right, so Connor, I'm gonna throw something back at you. Taiwan Semi has that China risk. Um, what if you go a little bit down or up the chain in the semiconductor space and invest in, um, I'm pretty sure both of these are US-based companies, but I know they're not um, you know, in, in Asia or you know, really anywhere uh, close to uh, China in geography. But what about a company like Lam Research or um, uh, does a ASML. risk do? ASML, not a risk. ASML, ASML. Is, not, is not a US company. Um, Where are they based? I don't think, I don't think Lam Research is either. Really? Here, let me, yeah, I think, let I think me those are the first European, European companies. Um, but I actually, so when I originally bought TSM, I thought it was the perfect pick and shovel play on the semiconductor industry, which I believed in for the next decade. Years later, I found out that no, the best pick and shovel play on the semiconductor industry may not be TSM, it may be ASML, because TSM is the largest holder of ASML EUV lithography machines, which are what um, they're... What is it? EUV ultraviolet, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, which is what manufactures the chips. These are the machines are massive. They're like the size of a house and they build these tiny little uh, really complex chips. And so a company like ASML, which is selling these machines to TSM, they may be the best pick and shovel play on everything. And they don't just sell them to TSM. They sell them to a bunch of uh, other companies as well but they are developing the technology that allows TSM to manufacture these things. And ASML has this massive backlog um, where they have orders. And their, their accounts receivable is pretty insane if you look at their balance sheet. Um, and that's because they've been just collecting orders and collecting orders and collecting orders uh, for years now, and they haven't been able to meet that demand. So it would be an interesting company to model out if you were to say, okay, if they were to um, you know, complete this amount of orders in the next few years, what would their valuation be? I'd like to do that at some point, but I don't have the time right now. So is, is it ASML that sells to, um, to Taiwan Semi? Yep. Is that what you said? So yep. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, my mind's going down a rabbit hole and I want to think this out. So if they have customers other than Taiwan Semi and Taiwan Semi for whatever China risk just disappears and it something the worst happens to them they have other customers that they can sell to so wouldn't asml be theoretically more stable and more robust surely tsm makes up a decent chunk of asml's revenue um you know and uh, probably a, a significant customer but if the worst happened they would have other customers who would be relatively more resilient than taiwan semi you know worst case with china happens it, it am i right in assuming that yeah, I, I mean, the two other main customers that they have are Intel and Samsung. Those are the two other big manufacturing companies. Um, and so I assume that they would just start selling more as the demand shifted away from TSM and towards Intel and Samsung. But the infrastructure is, is so far away from ready for that, 
that this would be this would be years. Uh, and I don't think people really fully understand how complicated this manufacturing process is. The manpower that it takes, the technology that it takes. You would think that a company like Apple that makes tons of these M1 advanced chips would come up with a manufacturing process themselves. Well, this would take tens of billions of dollars to build out this manufacturing process, and it still would not be as efficient as outsourcing it to TSM. And so this process in, in manufacturing of these chips is so unbelievably cost intensive. It's so unbelievably complicated. And if China invades Taiwan, everything's screwed. Um, so I'm, like, I'm taking the gamble here. I think the risk reward scenario on TSM is good. ASML is trading in a, a higher, higher valuation than TSM. I'm not sure what they are. I believe they're above 20 times earnings, maybe, maybe above 30 times earnings at this point in time. Let's check that. Like, like you, like you said, Connor, if TSM goes under and they, uh, you know, deliver 90% of basically the world's chips or, you know, the, the, um, advanced, you know, advanced, advanced chips, um, yeah. There are a lot of other companies that are going to struggle without those chips. It's not going to be just a uh, a Taiwan semi thing. It's really going to be a um, worldwide tech thing, to to uh, say the least. But. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, um, ASML. Not for example. I don't know why I said that. But ASML is trading at twenty five times earnings, and Taiwan semis at ten. So, I mean. From a valuation standpoint, both companies are going to be screwed for the next number of years if China invades Taiwan. I like the cheaper valuation. The, the risk reward might be a little higher there, but at the same time, I think both of these companies are great. Yeah, Jamie, you uh, brought up tech in general. Um, so you said you had thought. Uh, you said you had thoughts on this. Are retail investors still long tech? I need to move this out of semis because I don't know enough to contribute right now. Yeah, so for for some hold perspective. on one last thing. One last thing. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just pulled this up, okay? All right. Ca CapEx. Connor can't Capex. stop talking about semis. <laughs> CapEx from TSM in the trailing 12 months is $32 billion. That puts a price on how expensive this industry is. Okay. Let's move forward. Sorry. Yeah, so I, I I can't remember if it was you or or Connor Zane that that just texted this to to us, but um, inflows at at Arc, um, what was it, half a billion dollars of inflows? Um, yeah, near in, nearly half a billion dollars in the last three months at Arc. So look, I think um, first of all, how is this possible? Arc has done uh, terrible this year and really over the past year and a half. I mean, why are people still investing in ARC? I think that's the main question. To me, I have a couple responses. First, that's in the last month, I'm sorry. I got oh, in that the last one. In the last month, nearly half a billion dollars have flowed into ARC. My God. I think okay, that's so I think there are... Because usually Go ahead, people, people flow into ARC at the top or, or like when the market is still going down. Just like psychologically, I think that's what's been going on for a long time, so... It, all I wanted to say is it kind of still worries me that, you know, people are trying to call the bottom and buy ARC now, but we'll see. I think I think there are a few things that um, contributed to this. First, I think that a lot of people that are investing in the ARC ETF want exposure to growth tech. 
they don't want to do individual stocks on their own. And, you know, they're, they're using ARC as that. So, you know, whether they're rebalancing or, you know, have that, you know, 5% position in tech, if you're, if you're just, you know, ETF or indexing your, your entire way through, if you have that position, you want to rebalance, you want to keep that position. And they're just using ARC to do that. That's, that's the first option. I think it kind of goes in conjunction with this next idea is that, ARC did really, really good when tech was just going crazy. And what's even better is they milked that cow and they got such a strong brand name for being the tech ETF, the innovation ETF, the whatever other ETFs. They did a really good job solidifying their name as, hey, you want to invest in this? We have you. And so there are these, there are people that are seeing tech absolutely plummet and they're like, okay, I want to try to get in on this. Where am I going? I'm going to ARC because they established that brand name and they were so damn good at marketing when, you know, tech was going crazy and tech was only going up. They kind of solidified themselves as the ETF to invest in uh, for people that want tech and want to index into tech. And so, you know, as people are, you know, trying to invest in a way because they're seeing they want to try to capture that bottom or is the way that it's happening. And so I think it's a conjunction of those two trying to buy the dip and just people that are rebalancing and using that their marketing and their brand building at the center of that is why they're continuing to see inflows uh, during this, you know, absolutely terrible time. So you think it's more like uh, it's the people that missed out that are now investing? No, uh, no. I think it's both. I think it's people that did miss out. Uh, you know, they're they're tr- kind of saying by the dip, but also the people that just had their exposure to tech and they're doing their you know monthly, quarterly, yearly, whatever rebalance, and they want to you know their tech se- the, the tech piece of their sector fell sixty percent. Uh, that part of their portfolio fell sixty percent, and they're just rebalancing. They want you know they want five, they want ten, they want fifteen percent of their portfolio in tech. It fell. It got cut in half, and so they're just adding that back in, just getting rebalanced. It's just crazy that people are still put, I I, I can't get over the fact that nearly half a billion dollars have flowed into this in the last month and it's down 70, 80% in the last year. That's baffling to me. I I don't know if you can find another fund in in history that's like that. Usually, if a, for, for example, a guy that I work with, he used to work at SunTrust, now Truist, and then he went off and did his own thing, and he ran a hedge fund, a small-cap hedge fund, for a number of years. It's a multi-billion-dollar hedge fund that he did for a number of years, and then um, he compared himself to the Russell 2000. That was his benchmark for the fund. They underperformed for a year, a little over a year, and then all the funds just started flowing right out. And it went from a multi-billion-dollar fund to almost nothing, and they closed it a couple of years later. So like, that's usually the way that these funds work, is when you don't perform, you don't have money come in. And it's that just back not happening point. with ARC whatsoever. It goes back to Jamie's point. The marketing is so good, you know? Like, I, I really like that point, actually. Jamie. Yeah. Like, they became the, the bet on tech and on innovation, especially for people who don't want to do their individual stock picks. And I, I think you're right. That's where they went to park their money. And now people are probably doubling down on tech a little bit but you saw the the open letter right to the fed yeah i didn't yeah i, I heard it i didn't read it it was really it, the letter was actually short the video was long yeah the, the video was you a watched lot the longer. video didn't you jamie or zane 
Yeah, I watched a good yeah. portion of the video. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? I'll go second. I think she makes a lot of good points, although it's weird. This seems like an odd situation um, for a fund manager to be reaching out to the Fed chair and just being like, hey, please lower rates. <laughs> uh, like she makes good points though, but coming from it's, somebody that's running a fund, right. you it's know that, yes, yeah. yes. It's, it's not some no name out there writing a letter to the fed saying, please, my family <laughs> is struggling. I need you to lower interest rates or else I'm going to lose my house or something like that. You know, like that's not who's sending this letter. This is a, you know, multimillionaire fund manager. I, I don't know. It just seems a little odd to me. Yeah, but it's I appreciate like some good points. I mean, she she's basically saying her, the crux of her argument was like, yes, he, basically, okay, Powell wants to be like Volcker, like the next reincarnation of Volcker. Um, and the difference is you were starting with an interest rate base of 10% in Volcker's time, and now we had almost zero. We had like 0.25% now for Powell. And when Volcker went from 10 to 20, that was only a 2X increase. And, and the inflation had been going on for so long that companies had adjusted and they kind of, they knew what was going on. They had adjusted their, their business models and inflation was taken into account. So that 2X wasn't too huge of a move. But now going from 0.25 to what are we at, over 3% now, um, and, and they're planning another three quarter point hike. Um, it'll be something like a 16 fold increase in just the span within a year. Uh, so she's saying that is such a shock to the system. Um, and, and it's like, you see all the, the tweets that are like, um, the average house, say a $500,000 house cost, you know, two grand a month in mortgage um, a year ago with 2% interest. Now with 7% or whatever mortgages are, it's like double that. It's it's crazy. I think there's no way there's not a fallout from that. Um, but I, you know, all this said, I don't think Kathy's letter is going to do a damn thing because the Fed isn't going to care. They're driven by so much more than what Kathy Wood thinks. Uh, but I think she makes a good case. It's honestly probably the last thing they care about. I don't think they'd care, you know, any investor can write a letter to the Fed, you know, maybe even Warren Buffett, and I'm pretty sure they'd still be like, ah, no thanks, we'll we'll do it on our own, but thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, let's, let's make this an ARC podcast, just the whole thing. Um, because there was, I was, I was looking into Roku's valuation from ARC the other day. Usually, usually I look at these things and... I look at for the valuation for, for a chuckle. billion dollars a share, and I'm like, ha-ha, that's funny. <laughs> um, and then I move on with my life. But this one, so they've been buying a lot of Roku lately, and this one is actually kind of interesting. Not in the fact that I think it's reasonable. Um, their base case is um, $605 a share by 2026. That's what, what's Roku at these days? I think it's under hundred. Not six hundred and five dollars, and that's only four uh, years away. It's at fifty two dollars. It's at fifty dollars. Okay, it's a twelve x. Their base, their base case a is cash, a twelve x. Just a casual twelve x. You know, easy. Uh, that's ridiculous. But if you're looking at the numbers, okay. So, what's their bear case, Connor? 
sorry, just their bear did, case. Did they, we'll, we'll, yeah, they... we'll think about that in a second. But, okay, but let, okay. let me go over this first. Okay, so their their assumptions for connected TVs. These are smart TVs. Um, twenty twenty one estimates seven hundred and forty global households with connected TVs. Their bear case is that twelve hundred households will have connected TVs by twenty twenty six. I don't think that's that unreasonable. That's fifty percent growth um, in the in the next in the next few years, next four, next three four years. I, I don't think that's unreasonable, um, especially because because they are growing really really quickly. Their base case is that it'll almost double. And then their bull case is that it will almost double as well. It's going to take over the world um, and they're and just, release a robot and, they're and just saying, uh, <laughs> rates will go to zero again. And then it'll be worth $1,500 in the bull case in four years. <laughs> no no yeah. way are they saying that with a – oh, my God. So, well, okay, I'm, so I'm these things are ridiculous. The, the yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. No, yeah. no, no. no. They're, well, you're not that far off. Uh, their, bull case, <laughs> their bull case is $1,500. I'm dead ass. It's, yeah, the, the bull I, case is that. It's $1,493 a share by 2026. Um, we're going to have to mark this episode as explicit. Sorry, guys. Um, but anyways, looking at, looking at this, it really, it really is pretty interesting. And, and the reason that it interested me, I texted Jamie this the other day is that their assumptions for the growth in connected TVs are actually not that unreasonable. And I think they make a good case for why this is going to happen, why Roku is going to increase market share. Um, they have a great podcast out about this. And, and do I think their valuation for Roku is correct? No. But do I think other companies in that space that are benefiting from connected TVs are going to, to really benefit here, especially from connected TV advertising. Hint, Pubmatic. I think Pubmatic is trading at a fantastic valuation right now, under 20 times earnings. Um, and they're highly profitable. And their connected TV segment is growing, what, like 10x a year right now? It was so, it was at like it was like 150 percent in the most recent quarter, and yeah. some other quarter it was like up three x or something like that. Um, Connor, funny enough, I just a couple hours ago, so uh, a couple days ago, when people actually watch this, when this gets published, they released a video on the Trade Desk's Investor Day, and they spent a good half an hour to an hour talking about connected TV, um, and the the growth projections, the um, opportunity, the way they were describing connected TV is exactly the same as Roku is doing and Roku management is doing. And I'm sure, uh, you know, <clears throat> ARK Invest is doing right now. They were talking about how little is spent on connected TV right now. Um, yet how much, uh, how much usage, uh, streaming is seeing right now. It ma makes up you know, roughly, uh, a, a trade desk estimates were around 25 to like 30% of, uh, stream uh, of our, of TV hours watched were, were being streamed yet. Um, you know, a fraction of the, uh, advertising spent, uh, for TV yes. was spent on connected TV. Those are half to going to be converging at some point. And I don't see, uh, you know, how much we stream ever slowing down or and slowing the down the foreseeable makes, future. Yeah. The advertising makes so much more sense in connected TV versus regular TV as well. Exactly. Because you can actually target your audience. If you're doing traditional TV, you can't target your audience, which is why I think companies like Pubmatic, 
companies like Trade Desk, companies like Roku are really going to benefit in the future. And the main hindrance of advertising dollars going towards connected TV is sports. And sports are still primarily on traditional. You know, you talk about the Super Bowl, but I think that shift has already started to happen. And it's it's moving that way pretty pretty Thanks rapidly. And I think in four or five years we're going to see. Could be, could be. Um, but I, I really do think that, that there's a massive amount of advertising money in the TV space. And if those dollars start flowing towards companies like Trade Desk, companies like Pubmatic, uh, companies like Roku, we could see them have a lot of success. Yeah, they're, I mean, the ARC price targets have so, you know, they, they expect a lot out of their companies, I'll say that. But I think the research quality that goes into them is really interesting to read if nothing else like it, it's a good idea to see okay what can happen what are the key performance drivers for the company um and like blue sky scenarios i think it's still worthwhile to take a look um i don't really like how they use the monte carlo model but uh you know that's neither here nor there what's that so they run basically discounted cash flow models to get an intrinsic value, you know, what is this company worth on paper? But you don't want to just say this is it, right? So you have a whole range of outcomes. So you vary certain things, right? So for okay. this model, they might vary, um, you know, the number of accounts, for example, and that can be anywhere between here and, and you know, 50 million and 100 million, for example, and it has to be within a standard distribution. And then as that varies, it'll start iterating and it'll say under this macroeconomic condition or with this many accounts or whatever the variable is, this is what it's worth. So then you kind of get like a spectrum of values. Um, I don't know. I think it's mostly marketing to be honest, but you know, it, it's, yeah, it's there. interesting. It, it, it's interesting to see the research in that if you start thinking, if you, if you are given a task to say, Hey, figure out how to make people excited about Roku, <laughs> write me a report. They can come up with some really good stuff. I'm not going to lie. They can get me on board. <laughs> yeah. It's, all, it's uh, almost like what else? To be this bullish. It almost seems like they start from the point of, you know, this is our stock. We're going to pitch it. And they just go full throttle bullish on it, which is fine. You know, especially if you're arc. Um, but I don't know, maybe they do come from, the beginning of we don't know where we're going to pitch the stock. Is it a buy, hold or sell? But sometimes I feel like they, they really get it in their head and then they kind of make it work around the idea that they want to pitch. Yeah. So I've decided to speculate on the car industry. Um, That's so a I terrible a, choice. Uh, listen, not Come with here. my investments, if with you, my purchase. Okay. okay? So, so I, I have this truck that's pretty run down right now. And so I need a new car. I need something fuel efficient. My commute to work is pretty long every single day. And my truck can barely fit in the, in the parking garage when I drive in. So I'm looking forward to getting this new car uh, used. I, I'm, I'm going to get a used car, uh, something like a Honda Civic or, you know, along those lines. Anyways, do you have, do you have a Civic, Jamie? I got a I got a fourteen thousand dollar twenty nineteen Civic with like thirty thousand miles on it, and it gives me thirty seven miles to the gallon, and I love Perfect. it. That is a steal. Yes, that is, is a steal. And I, and I bought it in like 
uh, when the car market was bad, it was like, I don't know, like 20, it was like December 2022 or, or 2021, January 2022, something like that. When just yeah. Connor, you know, after, cars were after nowhere this, to be seen. After all this, you're not going to buy a Tesla? After all my, my preaching? Dude, about I, wish I, I wish I could. <laughs> I'm I just wish kidding. I could. I'm just kidding. With so much Connor, money. You should have <laughs> bought one of the 13,000 uh, Rivians that just got recalled for some you know, like <laughs> screw that was loose or something like that. Yeah, your steering, your steering might just Doesn't stop work, working while you're know. going down the road. <laughs> um, but no, so the reason that I'm speculating on the car market for my purchase is, one, this will be one of the largest purchases I've, I've had in my life um, up until this point. I did buy a boat, which was, which was a pretty large one. Um, but this one, I, I sold that boat, and now that money is in the market, not doing too hot. So I got <laughs> to get a car now. And the reason that I'm speculating is because I think car prices are going to drop pretty significantly in the next 12 months. So you've got multiple years now of supply chain issues with chips. And so new cars haven't been able to be manufactured as quickly, which has put a lot of demand on the used car market. So what's that? What that has obviously done is elevate the prices in used cars to where I go on Auto Trader and I'm looking at a Honda Civic. And I can't find one for less than $18,000 with less than 100,000 miles, which is pretty absurd. And so I'm sitting on the sidelines and trying to wait this one out and say, okay, with the rates increasing, people are not going to have as much purchasing power month by month if you're financing the car. So I think that's going to drive prices down. Also, you're going to have the, the supply chain is shoring up in the new car space where I think there are going to be more new cars and people are going to be able to purchase those. Um, financing new cars is a little bit, uh, is typically you can, you can finance at lower rates for newer cars than you can used cars. And so I think people might contemplate that as well. And also the wholesale price of cars has come down significantly. And so what this means is that used car dealers are making more money. Their margins are higher than they have been. It doesn't mean that the consumer price is any less. It just means that the wholesale price is a lot less, which the dealers are paying less for the cars, but they're still passing on the high cost to consumers because the demand is still extremely high. And so I'm waiting for the time when rates will come up high enough or they will stay elevated for long enough for that demand to be crushed. And then those, those consumer prices are going to come down to that wholesale price, which is a lot lower right now. I think you're That's right on the, the money. Okay. I think you're Good right stuff. on. I think, um, yeah, auto prices, your used auto prices especially, are going to absolutely collapse um, because we have interest rates going up. And I'm going to push EVs again. I'm going to do it, warning. But as EVs take more market share and they become the dominant valuable form of transportation, who is going to want to write loans backed by uh, internal combustion engine vehicles if they're rapidly losing uh, value because of decreasing demand for them. I think uh, that th this is something that ARC talks about as well. So, wow, we're coming full circle. Um, but I think <laughs> there's no way that, that used uh, combustion engine vehicles hold up their value as well over time. So, um, I, get, I don't know. I guess that's my warning for you, Connor. Be ready. I can't. I can't do an EV. It's, it's, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense yet. I've always said when it makes sense, I will get an EV. Yeah, this and sticker I think price that will be so much. Yeah, it's it's pretty, but it's not it's not as bad. Like if I was looking at new cars, 
EVs would definitely be something that I would look at because that would be my price range. You know, that, yeah. that's when you're in the, the thirty to fifty thousand dollar price range when you're looking at new cars. So, yeah, EVs would definitely be be in the ballpark there. But that's just not what I'm looking at right now. I bought my Civic in prepper in in hopes that when this one eventually craps the bed, like seven to ten years from now, I'll be able to buy an EV, and that's that's yeah. the goal of mine. I, I love like the new look of the Civics. I'm not going to lie. Like, since, Honestly, I think 2016 was the year they changed. They don't look bad at all. They look so much better don't. than they used to. I, I had I had a raggedy old 2010, and it was the ugliest thing in the world. But it got me through like all of high school and like halfway through college. So I can't really complain. And now, <laughs> now I got now go I have again. like now I have a 20, 2019 Civic. Like it looks good. Like. And it's something I'm going to be driving for 10 years. So, you know, I'm happy, but now editing the podcast. Thanks, Jamie. I got to go find a picture of a 2010 Civic. I'll shoot you a text to my old beater. You would not want to put it actually in the pod because it is absolutely disgusting. Let's go. That's funny. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, let's man. Like, let's get yeah, so you could sell that. I guarantee you could sell that Civic like right now for a hefty profit. I, pr I probably oh, could. It's, it's nice. Yeah. You throw that money in Pubmatic, become a millionaire. <laughs> Watch it drop fifty percent in value first. Or Roku. No, no, no. If you really want, if you really want, <laughs> get that, get that fifteen hundred dollar price target by twenty twenty six. Jeez, yeah. four years for it to go from fifty to fifteen hundred. That's absurd. I'm sorry, I can't get over that. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Four years is a little. My God, a little stiff. But so, do you guys want to? run through this last topic or save it for next time. I think it's a good one. So if we do it, we should do it well. Is it is it mine, the the last one I yeah, put in, or so, is it about yeah, the... Would you, would you rather have your company management Ooh. stay out of uh, public issues and ignore them or dive in and take a stance? Let's... I think I think we could go for like tw I I could go for twenty minutes on this, yeah. and I want to I want to do it right. So let's there a little little bit of a teaser for the you know a couple dozen viewers that are watching this far into the pod, but we'll we'll save that for first thing next week. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah, we can wrap it up there. Well, thanks everyone for watching. There's more from us at Intern Investing on YouTube, and you can check out these weekly podcasts wherever you get your podcasts on all platforms. So from me, Zane. Jamie and Connor, thanks for watching, and we'll see you in the next episode.